Broadcast, okay. <laughs> What's that now? I was screaming stuff. He yelled the wiener at me when I walked in. I didn't know why. <laughs> oh, you thought we were on the radio. <laughs> so you were performing into the void, kind of like uh, Bandini. Okay, a couple of things, actually. Um, well, weenie. That's where we've gone, huh? That's not hard-boiled. That's just childish. Okay. Um, course calendar. I want to point your attention to it. Some of you kind of seem like, you know, what's next? The syllabus and the calendar for this class are here, and I update them regularly should anything change. I immediately update them. Um, let me just actually take you through a couple of changes uh, right now. I added Miller's Crossing, that was week four, right? So that stands as it is. Fonte, this is where we are right now in week five. We'll finish Fonte up tonight. And then next week, week six, we're gonna be watching a film up in my office on the big screen. We'll be watching um, Double Indemnity. So make some time, it's gonna be at an hour, hour and 40 minutes. So we're gonna go about 20 minutes after, It'll probably be from six to 7.40, does that make sense? If there's a major problem, just come talk, okay? Um, with that, you can always make up the film on your own. Uh, I'm going to send out some selections from a book uh, by James Nearmore called More Than Night, and that will give us the ability to actually uh, look at that. I want to make sure that, I don't know if this is, anyone have earbuds? No. Yeah, I will put them in, so you won't have to worry about my wax. Although, there's no wax to be had. I am Q-tip king. <laughs> yeah, this is good to know, right? Wax is good for your ears, though. Wax is good for my ears? It keeps germs out. But it's very bad for your butt. So. <laughs> I mean, you gotta make a choice, right? At some point, there has to be a choice. Okay. So, alright, good. Hi, Leo, how are you? I'm good. Okay, so that will prevent, I won't put them in, that will just prevent any feedback. Okay, so to read, to continue. Fonte will finish up tonight, Thursday. Next week, Tuesday, we'll probably meet upstairs and watch Double Indemnity. And then we'll talk about that um, after the fact. But we're also going to have a library research session with the librarian, Peter Kalin, who will be coming in to talk to you. He's putting together a resource for the folks who are reading the glass key right now and getting ready for that. So he's coming up with a source. He'll be talking specifically to you. But I'm going to stagger the research projects for Wikipedia um, very quickly, I'm going to have another group I put together probably by the end of next week, and then a third group uh, the following week. So you, the first group, start reading that book. Leo, you asked me, and let me kind of reply. By about midweek next week, I expect you to be done with it. It's not a very long read, kind of like Red Harvest, and then be starting to do the research, right? And you'll talk with Peter. He'll be a resource, but he'll come in and talk to the whole class. Does that make sense? One of the things to think about, one of the ways to think about Wikipedia in this project is you're going to be, as a group, trying to make this Wikipedia article as good a resource for others to start <coughs> doing their research. You're going to point them to other resources. You're going to point them to you know, other frames of thinking about the book. But it's going to depend upon research, on secondary sources, primary sources, etc. And so this is our way of getting you in through the freshman seminar to kind of do pretty extensive research as a group. And I'll see who did what directly on Wikipedia, because your research will not just be on some paper that you hand to me and then it goes into the garbage, or I send it back and say good work, and then you throw it in the garbage. It's going to be something that anyone could use. And it's going to be a public service, because the Glass Key article as it stands right now on Wikipedia is pathetic. 
It's your group's job to make it excellent. Does that make sense? And we'll walk, work through that together. So um, that's where we are for next week, which gives you a little bit of time for Mildred Pierce. We'll be talking about Mildred Pierce the following Tuesday. It's a 350-page book, so take a little time with it. I really enjoy that book. We'll also be looking at the film after the, after the fact and looking at the differences. Because a lot of these famous noirs, a lot of these famous crime fictions, now almost every one of them has a film. So it's going to be interesting to watch, to read the novel and then watch the film and look at the differences and look at some of the ways uh, they rethought it. So to continue, and this is kind of a big one I want to uh, make sure you know, the midterm is after fall break. Right? I think that day is like the, it's week eight. I think it's the, what is it, the 18th? I believe it's the 18th, I'm not sure. But anyway, it's that Thursday after fall break. We will have our midterm in class. We'll talk more about that. Um, if not next week, then week seven. It will have everything we've done up and until, and including week seven. Does that make sense? So everything we've done. And then that gives you, the fall break gives you some time to kind of study, think about it. And we'll talk about what the test will look like. Any questions on the calendar? That's where we're going up to midterm. Any questions? Yes. yes. The glass key going to be on the midterm? No. Okay. The glass key is only because you five right now are the only five who are reading it. And so you guys are going to read that and actually do research. The other group is going to get a book that not everyone else is reading. They're going to read it and do research, etc. Okay. Does that make sense? I didn't know if it was if we were having discussions in class. No. Okay. The glass key, you guys are going to discuss it and research it as a group. And then you're going to start working on a Wikipedia article. And we'll actually introduce how you edit on Wikipedia, how you work on Wikipedia next week and week seven. right? And the deadline for your Wikipedia research article isn't until the end of the semester. So in fact, some ways, you guys have more of a head start than the other groups. But I'm going to stagger it just so that I can make sure the articles I find are perfect. Does that make sense? Questions? OK. So that's where we're going. Um, up and until now. If you have questions about any of this or if this represents an issue, just be sure to let me know. I mean, contact it. We have the syllabus here. Um, we have the course calendar on the hard-boiled site. So just be sure to keep that in mind. The other thing I'll be putting up on the hard-boiled site is Peter Caitlin, who's the um, librarian we'll be working with in this class. He's actually the librarian who's working with freshman seminars, which is great. It works perfectly for us. Um, he's going to have a resource that I'm going to link to off this site, which is actually an awesome resource. He's already built out a whole series of resources for editing Wikipedia, a whole series of researches, uh, uh, sources for researching literature, hard-boiled literature, etc. So your first group are going to meet with him, but you're going to have an idea of how we use the library to find resources. Right? And if you look at a good Wikipedia page, and let's do that together, let's find a good find a featured Wikipedia page. And this is kind of how I'm imagining this research project. It's somewhat unorthodox, but in some ways it's actually probably more relevant than a lot of the research you might be doing. Because there's a couple of things we're going to be thinking about in the process. So here's a featured article. And it's a featured article on, of all things, a tooth comb. I love that there's a featured article on a tooth comb. And what a featured article means, not all articles on Wikipedia are created equal. Some are better quality than others. And this gold, or yeah, that's a gold star, suggests that it's featured, suggests that it has the best, kind of most objective resources framed 
an article on Wikipedia can have. So it's kind of the best of the best. And it'd be interesting for us and for you to start looking at what might make a very good, look at that set of teeth, a very good article. And particularly with something as kind of off of our topic as a tooth comb. Look at this for example. Look how many references this Wikipedia article has. Now, this isn't me saying you know, Wikipedia should be your first and last stop for research. No. But Wikipedia, in many ways, especially if it's an excellent article, and part of this class is going to be making you think about what makes an excellent article and what doesn't, but also an excellent article will be an awesome starting point for you to research a particular topic. And what I want you all to do with your particular articles is make that article an excellent starting point of research for anyone who wants to find out more about the glass key or etc. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm getting kind of yes. either concerned looks. How do you feel about Wikipedia? How many of you use Wikipedia? Okay, all of you. How do you feel about using Wikipedia not just as a consumer, but as a producer? Going to the library and actually proactively making an article better. Understanding how knowledge is constructed on Wikipedia. Right? Does this make sense to you as a project? Okay, good. It should be fun, and it's an experiment for me. So I'll obviously work with you along the way. Does that make sense? And I plan on working with every group as one of the researchers to help. Right? This isn't something I'll step outside of like some god and say, yes, good, no bad. This is something I want to figure out alongside you. Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right. So that's a kind of a heads up on that. So between that and the midterm, you'll have your hands full, and the reading you'll have your hands full for the next few weeks with this class. So that's a good, just kind of a good idea of where we are and where we're going. Um, let's actually take a moment, well, no, let's take the rest of the class, actually, and talk a little bit about yes, ducks. I really liked our meeting and discussion last week, and I really like the fact that it was kind of born of or born out of, um, you know, just an idea for me that kind of dominated my thinking of the book. And something I hadn't really thought of was when um, Jessica brought up the point of existentialism. Now, how many of you were excellent students because you're at UMW, an excellent school where we demand only the best? How many of you went out and researched what the hell is existentialism? A little bit? Good, so you're a little bit excellent. <laughs> you might be more excellent than everyone. Who else? What if we'd already talked about it in a class? So then you know something about it. Yeah, confident? You, yeah, well, <laughs> excellent is as excellent does. That's the issue. So, not many of you. What'd you go home and do? Blog. You what? Blog. You blog. And commented on blogs. And see? Excellent. <laughs> See, look, she knows. She understands the drill. Look, this system is not that hard to figure out. You just say a couple of things, you write a blog post, you're set. You can't figure it out. You shouldn't be in college. Right? Well, one of the things when I, I mean, existentialism, you know, has been a fascinating kind of 20th century philosophy. Like we said last week, it started with Kierkegaard um, in the 19th century, but really made popular by thinkers like Nietzsche and Sartre 
and I think it's Satre. I think that's how you spell it with two R's. <coughs> Kierkegaard would be, for many people, the earliest, and I think you spell Kierkegaard like this, but uh, my Danish is not that good, so that could be wrong. And someone else who you would throw in there potentially is Heidegger. These are, in many ways, the big four philosophical thinkers undergirding um, existentialism. They're not alone. There are several others. We'll look at points in Ask the Dust where um, Bandini talks specifically about Nietzsche and even talks about one of his works, The Antichrist. Right? So this is kind of a, a nice intellectual overview of some of the elements of existentialism. I remember one of the most useful kind of aphorisms I've ever heard about existentialism that helped me kind of understand the philosophy, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand it entirely, but one of the aphorisms that I heard that helps define it is this. Existence precedes essence. Existence precedes essence. What does this mean? Anyone have any idea what this means? Anyone want to take a shot and feel free? Maureen? Um, proceeds, I get, uh, I'm thinking means like before. Yeah. Okay, so I think it would mean that first a person or a thing exists, like they're born or made or whatever, and then they have to build their essence, like they, they have to make their life. Yeah. I mean, over time, right? That was the one point. Yeah. I mean, so. Up and until, and I don't want to say up and until existentialism per se, but for many people, Descartes, the idea of essence, who we were, was already kind of established, right? And think about the biblical idea of essence, right? When you're born, you are who you are. Your person as an individual, you who you are, Michael, is decided and defined at that moment. You as a baby already know you're going to have yellow hair. You already know you're going to go bald at 30. You already know, right, you're not going to be able to grow much facial hair. That's all established. Not only, not for you, Michael, that's obviously for me I'm speaking. But yeah, you just shit. You look great. But all that stuff is predetermined in some ways. Existentialism came to that <coughs> equation and said, actually, no. What happens is, at any given moment in your existence, you're still defining who you are. Who you are is never a given. Who you are can only ultimately de be decided at the end, when it's over, when you're dead. Your essence can only in many ways be determined once your existence has ended. Hence, the existence precedes essence. Essence can only come after that. And for me, this was a really useful way to think about what existentialism thought was. Existentialism takes the individual as the focus of the philosophy. Right? And rather than working kind of very strict, systematic thinking philosophically, it actually takes and focuses the individual as the center of the philosophy. Many people critique this, like an individualistic philosophy to this degree, potentially dangerous. You know, how do you deal with kind of mass movement? How do you deal with collaboration? Right? Well, say that is, it's not a perfect philosophy, and many people have many things to say about it, but it is interesting to think that we talk about existentialism, thanks to Jessica early on last week, and then we think about Bandini, right? When you think about Bandini as a narrator, it is all about 
his perspective. It is all about his viewpoint of the world. Everything is determined by him. Almost to the point, I think you brought it up, Sabrina, in your post, where he's sitting in the library, the LA library, right? And he's talking about all the greats. And who does he think and imagine on that shelf as well? Himself. Himself. Like he puts himself in that equation, right? And another point that was brought up, and I'm trying to remember who, who blogged it, but this idea, I think it was you, Jillian, is this idea that, you know, is the scary vision of the individuals only not only to be important, to leave a legacy, but writing is that way at it, right? And we constantly think, when we think about this novel, what is this novel about? This novel is about a guy writing a novel, right? So ultimately, what happens? You know, and there's many of you pointed out he doesn't have that kind of sense of value of it anymore. He loses some of that. But it really is a journey of a guy writing a novel, and you're reading a novel with a guy writing a novel. Let's kind of you know, talk about the inception elements, right? Reading a novel about a novel being read by someone else. Like that could be, you could start playing on that, like inception meets, you know, narratives. So what I want to do now is actually look, talk about this broad idea, and I really love um, framing this novel as an existential novel, particularly because we're going to start reading James M. Cain. And James M. Cain, who we'll start reading over the next week, actually Double Indemnity is a film based upon one of his novels called Double Indemnity. And Mildred Pierce is yet another one of his novels. The third one, is, he has a kind of trilogy of great hard-boiled novels. The third one would be The Postman Always Rings Twice. And those are three novels that many people very much informed the genre in the 40s, 30s, and 40s. So he is often referred to as an existentialist. And he hated labels. He hated the idea that people called him hard-boiled, didn't like the term at all. He hated that people said his fiction is existentialist, didn't like the term at all. He was very much against labeling. But at the same time, this vision, this notion, and this philosophy that informs a lot of the 20th century in many ways informs this period of literature we're reading, particularly this genre. So you actually made a great connection before, between why acid dust, in many ways, might fit in hard boil. So thank you. I love it when students make arguments even if they didn't realize they were. So let's look at this book. Let's take a step back, and we can talk all the generalizations we want. But let's get into it. Connor, you had actually mentioned and I don't know if it was in a post or if it was on a, or a tweet or what it was, but you mentioned the first paragraph. You said, I don't think I've ever read as good a first paragraph in any book. Let's start there. No better place to start. And you should read it and read it loud. And if you don't have a book, you know the drill. Love thy neighbor. <laughs> That's actually not existentialist. One night I was sitting on the bed in my hotel room on Bunker down in the very middle of Los uh, Angeles. Don't battle it. Read it clearly and loud. I think it was. Now you go fast. You try okay. to get through it. You're nervous. You don't know what's coming down. You're nervous. You try to, you get, you're getting psyched up. You want to say weenie. <laughs> <laughs> One night I was sitting on the bed in my hotel room on Bunker Hill, down in the very middle of Los Angeles. It was an important night in my life because I had to make a decision about the hotel. Either I paid up or I got out. That was what the note said, the note the landlady had put under my door. A great problem, deserving acute attention. I solved it by turning out the lights and going to bed. Awesome. 
So why don't you like that? It's very <coughs> it's, it's quirky. It's, uh, it's just he, he talks about how it deserves his like very keen attention. Like he needs to basically just like come in. Yeah, I mean, I love how many of you that major problem you have to do, how do you deal with it? Don't you do that all the time in this. <laughs> oh, I can't pay that bill? Going to bed. Oh, I can't deal with my kids? I'm going to bed, right? I mean, it's a very, like, you know, it's a strategy. But what's also, this is one of those points, that first paragraph, where that is really hard boy. Like, look at the terminology and the way he sets it up. I bet many of you, when you read it, and probably weren't thinking that far ahead, like, oh, this is, okay. I understand the staccato nature. I understand the tone. But he goes, obviously, dramatically from it, right? He moves away from the hard boiled altogether. But I, too, really thought, what a brilliant open. And what a brilliant frame between this notion of poverty, being able to pay your rent, and not. And put yourself in a situation. I hope none of you are in that situation. But if you are in a situation where you don't know if you can pay your rent or your mortgage, you know, and we've been through a crisis in 2008. We have to, as a culture, come to terms with some of this. There's nothing worse. There's no worse feeling. Speaking from personal experience, right? It's kind of harsh. And like, he's, like, he's there. He's in it. And it frames it, without saying it from the minute, the depression. Right? Yeah, it really does. You say a lot in the very little. Let's go on. He talks about Joe DiMaggio. Does anyone here, I, I'm just going to make a guess. Does anyone know Joe DiMaggio? Did you look that up? Okay, who's, how do you know? Okay, good. I'm glad. Because there are the other ones. Who's Joe DiMaggio? He's a Yankees player. He is a Yankees player. And Yankees have the greatest franchise in history, right? They have 27 world championships. There's no other team that's right? just a point, a fact. Leo, I thought you were going to Leo is from Boston. Yes. Yeah. Leo is from Boston for the years. Leo does look like you. <laughs> Leo, poor Leo. 27 2. Oh, how many did they have? Four. I just know actually, I've been to baseball game only once, to the professional one. And like uh, 10 minutes after the game started, I turned to my neighbor and asked, when the game will start? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so who's Joe DiMaggio? Let's get back to it. He's a famous fan. What position did he play? No. Damn it! No! He's not a shortstop. He played center field. Not that it matters. I just want to see how he was. He was Marilyn Monroe's second husband. And he had a crush on her for happy. Uh, what's more important? Okay. <laughs> what was his nickname? No, I'm not going to go to his nickname. Why would Bandini be talking about Joe? Because he wants to be great. He wants to be great, but there's even another reason. What did you say? They're both Italian. Exactly. And this is something that comes up, particularly when we start seeing, particularly when we start seeing the way he treats his Mexican goddess Camilla, right? So DiMaggio is Italian. What else? What do we know? Who else is Italian? Mandini. Mandini. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Mandini comes from immigrant parents. Uh, what's my guess? And we're going to look at it a little bit on. I mean, he talks about Joe DiMaggio checks the papers, and Joe DiMaggio had those amazing years where he's batting anywhere from like 380 to 4. I mean, just amazing career. But he's talking about Joe DiMaggio as one of the Italians he can turn to. 
But there's really the struggle in Bandini between not only this notion of Italianness or Mexicanness, but also this notion of what it means to be American. Well, look at a particular passage where it really is quite almost sardonic the way he starts defining America. But just a point, this idea of his Italianness and this Catholicness comes out again and again. You're shaking your head. About the American, this one? Okay, yeah, I like it too, so we'll look at it, okay? <laughs> You're freaky. Okay. <laughs> Page 13. So one of the other things about this book, I really, I mean, it's one of the ways a lot of people define Ask and Dust. It's by the way in which it places you in a time and place. Particularly it places you in Los Angeles during the Depression. And what's interesting is Mildred Pierce, um, the Postman Always Rings Twice, and Double Indemnity all take place in Los Angeles, as do many great hard-boiled noir films and books. So now another connection this has is this relationship to LA. So let's look at, you know, and we talk about, he'll talk about great author this, but let's look at 13, the, the second full paragraph starting Los Angeles. Who wants Leo? Los Angeles, give me some of you. Los Angeles, come to me the way I came to you. My feet over your streets, your pretty town. I loved you so much. You set flower in the sand, you pretty town. A day and another day, and the day before, and the library with the big boys in the shelves, old razor, old mankin, all the boys down there, and I went to see them. Here razor, here mankin, yeah, yeah. Hi. The, hi. That's a weird way to write hi. Anyway. <laughs> uh, there is a place for me too, and it begins with B in the B shelves. Arturo Bandini. Make way for Arturo Bandini, his slot for his book. And I sat at the table and just look at the place where my book Right there, close to Arnold Bennett. Not much that Arnold Bennett, but I would be there to sort of bolster up the beast. Old Arturo Bandini, one of the boys, until Sangio came along. Some scent of perfume. So the fiction room, some click of high heels to break up the monotony of my fame. Gala day, gala dream. Beautiful. <laughs> what do you make of this? Sabrina, you already talked about this in your post. You already mentioned this, and I like what you picked up on it. It's a great moment in the book. Why did you write about this one? What about this structure? Um, it just showed that like, he, like, Desperate to become like a famous writer like all the other guys, but like it's like always out of his grasp. Yeah, and once he becomes, like you said, once he publishes that novel, it's not enough. It's almost nothing, right? And it's interesting too, you know, one of the people he mentions here, this figure Mencken, um, that's actually referring to a writer, H.L. Mencken, who was a famous essayist, kind of cultural critic. He's the one who, who followed and reported on the famous Scopes trial about evolution. He's a really famous essayist and American man of letters. He is actually, in, in real life, he's Hackmoon. He's actually Fonte's mentor. Man, Fonte would write in these long, extravagant letters like we saw, right? 
and then it would be 20 pages long, <coughs> back with writing back three words, turn it into a story, here's your $15, you know, go blow it on cigars, right? But actually, Mencken, the real man of letters, there's a whole collection of the letters between Mencken and Fonte. Because Fonte would basically write many of the works he got published to Mencken as a kind of epistle. And so there's this relationship between Mencken, and he kind of refers to him as the great Hackmuth and kind of his god. But that's actually very much autobiographical. It's very much based on Fonte's relationship to H.L. Mencken. And Mencken himself you know, was a fascinating figure with a fascinating career. He, like Fonte, was a major fan of Nietzsche's thinking, was a major kind of enemy of organized religion. He thought organized religion was one of the greatest problems in the US. And so he actually had really kind of strong views about a lot of the ideas we'll see in Fonte. So when he mentions Mencken, it's not without a real kind of, I think, literary ancestry in his mind. And the funny thing about Fonte is, kind of strange and sad thing about Fonte is, come 1940, the war hits, he just published this. After the dust, 1939 came out, you know, John Steinbeck thought it was great. <coughs> Obviously, Mencken thought it was great. Many kind of established literary figures thought it was great. The war hit. No one was really very much interested in literature at the moment. There were other questions. His publisher kind of put it on the side shelf. And for the next 20 or 30 years, he was just basically hacking out scripts and humming. Not until the 70s, when Charles Bukowski rediscovered him, did people start reading Fonte. That's why I was struck by how many of you, not all of you, like Fonte and were kind of a fan. He's kind of the writer, a kind of possibly great writer that he never became. And part of his own fate and circumstances and kind of global wars of history prevented it. You know, but he still went on writing. He still went on hacking away for Hollywood. But it's amazing to think, even before he knew what his existence would lead to, he had these dreams of being a great writer. In fact, you know, he's long dead now. And still, he's considered a marginal figure. You know, I, I tend to think he's a great writer, but you know, I don't think that's generally understood. And I love that, that he's actually the marginal figure he didn't never want to be. But by the same time, by writing the book about his marginality, not only his Italianness, but his views and his style, kind of the book itself came to be. It was vision. So also, I didn't talk about this. What do you make of this? Love, love letter to Los Angeles, right? Los Angeles, I can't read it as good as Leo, so I won't try. Los Angeles, give me some of you. Los Angeles, come to me the way I come to you, my feet over your streets, your pretty town, I loved you so much, you sad flower in the sound, sand, you pretty town. What do you think about this? And what do you think about the figure of Los Angeles throughout this book? How many of you know Los Angeles? How many of you have went there? Brenner, you know that, right? You've been there? Yeah, Los Angeles. What's that? You've been there once? When I was a when I was a freshman, like you, I went to George Mason University, came from Long Island to George Mason, went there, and then the following year I went to Los Angeles. I dropped out of school, I went out to California, and I spent the last seven years there. One of the things about Los Angeles that I found fascinating, well, first of all, the public, because my parents basically said I'm not paying for school anymore. So I was like, oh I'm screwed. So one of the things is, you get residency there, it cost me 35 bucks a semester to go to community college, which is unheard of. And when I finally got into the UC system, it cost me 500 bucks a quarter. I could pay that in a week's worth of work. And so, you think about the idea of what's possible. 
but also for me as an East Coaster going to LA. The idea of the dream, kind of like he talks about with the people in the hotel, but the possibility of the West to remake yourself, all things you guys already talked about. Right. Well, something I've noticed, because I was born in California, all my family lives there still, and I didn't notice so much when I was younger, but when I was older, coming from here and visiting them just made me realize like how conservative and so much sheltered we are here, and everything out there is so different, and there's so much variety, and there really is all that opportunity that our turban like, talks about, yeah, you know, it's especially very, coming from a small town. And it's very interesting. There was a class taught at UCLA about the idea of the West and the figure of the West, particularly in novels, and this idea of going there to reimagine yourself, like getting outside of the strictures of the East Coast of the culture. And add to that another layer, which is interesting to me. My wife is from Italy, and she's more American than me. She was born and raised in Italy until she was 30. But in many ways, she loves the idea of being in a place where you can kind of escape some of the strictures, some of the traditions, and kind of have the freedom to experiment. And for her, the US still represents a lot of what we take for granted with that sense of freedom. And I think for us, on the East Coast, that's what California represents. So it's interesting how we always have these notions of a kind of you know, frontier. You know, whether you're in the US or Europe, and other people might feel very differently about going back to Europe for a sense of that tradition that we don't have here. But I agree with you, and I remember coming back from LA to New York City to go to graduate school. You know, in LA, it was like, hey, you have a job at a 7-Eleven? Awesome. You're kicking ass. In New York, it's like, what? You don't have a Rolls Royce? You don't have a $400,000 apartment? I was like, oh, no. I mean, I got back here. I was like, oh. I was a terrible life of poverty for the next 10 years, you know? And whereas LA, no one really cared. There was such a different notion of living your life, of values. And I always find that fascinating, the difference between so LA for me does represent that. It does represent a place of possibility, you know, and a frontier, a lot of interesting ways. And I think he's kind of getting at that, even though he shows at CV7. All right. Um, and you'll even see on the bottom of 13, you know, he'll start talking about, but the landlady, the white-haired landlady, kept writing those notes. She was from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And you'll see when he describes people, no one's from Los Angeles, right? Everyone's from somewhere else. Everyone's from Michigan or Connecticut, right? Or Colorado. Like the idea of a native in Los Angeles is kind of questionable and it brings up these kind of assumptions about Camila, which is interesting. But we'll get to that in a second. All right, so let's keep going. Go to 17. <laughs> I talked about Hackmuth, right? And Hackmuth, obviously, is his mentor. It's really H.L. Mencken, and this is who he's writing. But if you look at the top of that um, second line on the top of 17, Mr. Hackmuth, that the climate here has anything to do with it, please advise. Do you think, Mr. Hackmuth, that I write as well as William Faulkner? Please advise. Do you think, Mr. Hackmuth, that sex has anything to do with it? Because, Mr. Hackmuth, because, because. I told Hackmuth everything. I told him about the blonde girl I met in the park. I told him how I worked it, I, how the blonde girl tumbled. I told him the whole story, only it wasn't true. It was a crazy lie, but it was something. It was writing, keeping in touch with the great. And he always answered, oh boy, he was swell. He answered right off, a great man responding to the problems of a man of talent. And I really love this relationship between Hackmuth and Fonte, because frankly, Hackmuth was a great man, established in literature. And he was writing this guy, living in Bunker Hill, living off of oranges. 
they were having this kind of relationship. And I mean, Fante was very much inspired. He would write some lies, he would write him these, you know, stories that he would publish. It's just a fascinating figure. Now, how many of you know of the character he refers to Faulkner? We all familiar with Faulkner, right? The greatest American writer ever, right? Good. Um, Faulkner wrote a story that I think if I teach this class again, I'm going to incorporate into the syllabus called Sanctuary. <coughs> Has anyone read Sanctuary by Faulkner? Sanctuary is a hard-boiled novel, and there's basically this guy Popeye, who's similar in some ways to this is not the not the cartoon character, but his name is Popeye. Similar in some ways to um, Dandini in that he's somewhat impotent. And so there's this crazy, horrific scene in Sanctuary, and I think I talked about it before in this class, where he rapes someone with a corn cob. That's right. And that's one of these kind of very violent images of noir and of hard-boiled that lives. And it's funny that you know Faulkner, and I didn't know why, I, I always think of Faulkner in a very different frame than hard-boiled, but he very much did write. You know, it was one of his, he said, favorite novels to write because he had so much fun and he had so much respect for the genre. So it's interesting that we should talk about Faulkner here just as a side point. All right, let's keep going. There is a point here, and let's go to it now. I want to talk about this a little bit. Um, talks about the seamy side of life on 21, but let's go to 22. And let's start um, about Main Street after the show. Midnight, let's go halfway down. Here was the Church of Our Lady. Anyone see that? Who wants to read it? A new voice. Yes, Mirage, awesome. Okay, uh, here was the Church of Our Lady, very old. Okay, slow. Uh, here was the Church of Our Lady, very old. The adobe blackened with ink. For sentimental reasons, I will go inside. For sentimental reasons only. I have not read Lenin, but I've heard quoted, <coughs> religion is the opium of the people. Mm -hmm. Talk to myself and on the church steps, yeah, the opium of the people. Myself, I am an atheist. I have read the Antichrist, and I regard <coughs> it as a capital piece of work. I believe in the transvaluation. Transvaluation. Transvaluation of values, sir. The church must go. It is a haven of the bourgeoisies, of boobs and bounders of all Brahmic and not Mountain not a mess, yeah. Okay, good. Let's talk about this passage. Okay, who's this Lennon character who's referring to? John Lennon? No. I am the walrus. Have you seen the big Lebowski? Right. I am the walrus. What does he say? No, Donnie, you're out of your element. John, uh, Ivan Ilyich. You know his full name? Lennon? Vladimir Ilyich Lennon. Perfect. I or Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. Leonov. That's what he says. He says the whole thing. Levin. And who's that? The Russian. The Russian. Good. We're starting to narrow it down now. <laughs> who's Levin? Is he after Stalin? He's before, right? Very much? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Leo, we're ready for you as the school. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's still newborn. What's that? It's still newborn because the boys torture them a little bit more. <laughs> what? I missed that. It's so it's so important for me to just uh, tell you okay. all the story of Lenin. Maybe someone else knows everything. Yeah. What do you guys know about Lenin? Yeah. Cannot answer all the questions. That's right. <laughs> you must do what? What must they do? Look it up. Look it up. Very good. Thank you, Connor. 
you look it up? Lenin <laughs> <laughs> was a political philosopher. He was also one of the leaders of um, the Russian Revolution. Right? He was one of the early kind of really influential thinkers about communism and the possibilities of communism. And one of the tenets were was atheism. And he's kind of framing Lenin here and the opium of the people, right? Religion is the opium of the people. Basically framing a whole tradition that Western civilization is built on. Catholicism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Basically it's just opium. So basically all that is is a way to subject the people so that you can control problematic. I mean, traditions have many things in them. But this was basically the gist of one of the tenets of his philosophy. And so in a very kind of offhanded manner, Fonte is kind of bringing Lenin in, talking about them. And then he goes on to say what? I have read the Antichrist. Antichrist. Who wrote that? Nietzsche. What's that? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Good. Because right. I just said it earlier. Good. So that's, and now here comes down this idea of Nietzsche. One of the things that Nietzsche deals with, and this is what? Religion. Religion, but also particularly, I believe in the transvaluation of values. Sir, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe in the transvaluation of values? Yes, please. It means that uh, socially acceptable values are actually uh, don't mean that much anymore, and we should uh, think about them again and uh, kind of you know change some of them. For example, the religion. Yeah, and challenge them. And this is really part of what Nietzsche's Antichrist was doing: was challenging the question of God, and that kind of famous shot heard across the world: God is dead, right? And by saying God is dead. You know, as a metaphor, what you're doing is you're challenging some kind of sacred values that we all hold dear, potentially. And so transvaluing that is, like you said, reimagining what the value of a god is. Maybe the value of the god is, is not this afterworld. It's not this kind of narrative of social and cosmic order. But the value of a god is to subject an entire people to use a narrative of God to keep a whole crew and a whole nation, say, down, or a whole world of people down. And that's a transvaluation of the idea of God, right? And it's a, this is deep stuff, right? This is like, you know, Nietzsche as a thinker, the existentialist as a thinker, really in many ways frame some of the kind of values that we're going to challenge. And over the course of that, century deconstruct, you know? Deconstruct some basic understandings and assumptions we have as a civilization. Now this is not kind of like, oh yeah, you know, time to take out the garbage and read a little Nietzsche, <laughs> right? When you leave Nietzsche, there should be something in you that kind of empties out. You would hope, right? There's something when you start reading Fante even, and you start, if you read Fante and you read it closely, something in you should start saying like, ah, this doesn't feel right. Something's wrong. Right? Well, maybe not. I don't know. But for me, all this stuff, when I was reading a great text or coming to a great idea, something in me was fighting it, was struggling it, didn't understand it or didn't want to. Right? And this is just throwaway if he's doing it. Throwaway. Oh, a 
almost making it somewhat, you know, cliche. And he goes on, I believe the transvaluation of values, sir. The church must go. It is the haven of the bourgeoisie. Does anyone know what that is? The way that term? Did you guys look up that term? I did. Rock and roll. Yes, Sarah. What's that? Uneducated. And the bourgeoisie actually was a term that Mencken came up with to kind of talk about the uneducated middle class. And it's kind of a term he framed, and it's playing off of the term the bourgeoisie. And so it's actually very much in the school of Mencken's thinking. And it goes on, it is the haven of the bourgeoisie, of boobs, bounders, and all Brummagem mountebanks. Brummagem? You guys look that up? They have this thing, it's this crazy invention. Came out in like 1994. You guys might have heard of it, it's called the internet. One of the things you can do with it, you can put a term in there. And what happens is amazing. I looked up mountebanks. Mountebank, what's a mountebank? Deceives others. Right. And founders are worthless. They're worthless. <laughs> worthless, mountebank's kind of a charlatan, right? A fake. And the brumogen is also that. When you say a brumogen, it means like you're getting something but it's not the real thing. Right? It's a fake. Right? A Brumogen Pullman is from a term in Great Gatsby. And it actually means a fake kind of type of car or type of uh, railroad. It, to read well, you have to spend the time contextualizing the words, the way they were used in the time. To be a good reader, to be a thoughtful reader, you have to spend the time. Part of your reading should be spent on the internet looking up content. There's no excuse. You're a college now. It is time to run with the big dogs. Jillian. Can I just say something I noticed? Yes. The only what time did you he, notice? The only time he ever uses alliteration is only with the letter B. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Because yeah. Every time. Mm -hmm. well, that's interesting. That would be an interesting kind of like imagining and looking at his alliteration only with the letter B and what that might be. <coughs> Could it be because he's part of the bourgeoisie? <laughs> okay, good. Excellent, Sarah, looking that stuff up. That's how it should be. And I'm glad that it's starting to, to get there. Now, we also deal at this point, this is the first time we meet the prostitute, right? This is the first of many prostitutes we'll meet in this, in this book. Um, and let's go to page 23, because it starts drawing the line around some of the racial and ethnic kind of problems with Bandini and Bandini's imagination, and particularly with Camila, and we'll see that very soon. So page 23, um, enough, I saw it all. He, what is he doing at this point? He's, he sees this prostitute. She says, hey, good looking, want to have a good time? And what does he say? No, thanks. No, no thanks. But then he goes across the street, right? What does he do? He turns back, and what does he find? She's already on another guy. She's with someone else, right? So he's like pissed off. And we don't know what he's going to do. But here's him being angry about her being with another guy. And God forbid, not only is it another guy, it's a? It's a Mexican. And hence ensues the beginning of Bandini's crazy kind of bigotry that is deep-seated in other ways. And we'll look at that. We'll look at the point where he tries to deal with it. But let's look at that enough. I saw it all. Who wants to start reading? Yes, Brenna. Slow and loud. I know you can do it. 
Enough. I saw it all. I turned and walked back toward the church. The fog was impenetrable. The girl was gone. I walked on. Perhaps I could catch up with her. At the corner, I saw her again. She stood talking to a tall Mexican. They walked, crossed the street, and entered the plaza. I followed. My God, a Mexican. Women like that should draw the color line. I hated him. The spit, the greaser. They walked under the banana tree in the plaza, their feet echoing in the fog. I heard the Mexican laugh. Then the girl laughed. They crossed the street and walked down an alley that was the entrance to Chinatown. The oriental neon signs made the fog pinkish. At a rooming house next door to a chop suey restaurant, they turned and climbed the stairs. Good. Here. Where do we hear this language again from Mandy? Like He's talking to Camila, right? This relationship, right? And it gets violent, right? He's abusive. Let's go to some of that, because we haven't really gotten into the Camila relationship, and I think it's hot, it's high time. We start to look at him and Camila, right? He goes to the prostitute, and we know he can't have sex with her. He just pays her all his money. So he, she'll keep talking, and then he leaves, right? Um, we move on there. Let's find the part where he starts, him and, first of all, the point where he meets Camila, which is <coughs> on page 35, but then the point at which they start getting into this struggle. And I want to talk a little bit about that. All right, so he's, where does he meet Camille? The diner. The diner, it's the bar, right? What's it called? The Columbia Cafe? Right? And he meets her, she's working. He's going in there to have what? Coffee. It's a coffee, right? Five cent coffee. Right? And is it a good coffee? No. It's a terrible coffee. Five cents for this crap, right? He meets her, describes her very quickly. Her nose was Mayan flat with large nostrils. Her nips were he lips were heavily rouged. <laughs> what did I say? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, on to the next point. She was the racial type, and as such, she was beautiful. But she was too strange for me, which is very interesting when we start to learn a little bit more about Mandy. What do we already know about Mandy? Self-conscious. Self-conscious, but is he the racial type? You remember what his his landlady says to him when he's trying to rent the apartment for the first time? You're not Mexican. Are you Mexican, right? Because of his skin? Because he's Italian? He's like, I'm not Mexican, I'm an American, right? He starts to kind of claim that again. And there's this kind of really interesting question with his own notion of identity and who he is, right? So let's go back. To, oh, let's go to the next page on 35. Let's start with those shoes. Anyone want to read that? Those shoes? Maureen. Those shoes. They were Harachis. How do we pronounce that? Harachis. Harachis. Okay. They were Harachis. The leather thongs wrapped several times around her ankles. They were desperately <coughs> ragged Harachis. The woven leather had become unraveled. When I saw them, I was very grateful, for it was a defect about a defect about her that deserved criticism. She was tall and straight-shouldered, a girl of perhaps 20, faultless in her way, except for her tattered haraches. And so I fastened my stare at them, watched them intently and deliberately, even turning in my chair and twisting my neck to glare at them, sneering and chuckling to myself. Plainly, I was getting as much enjoyment out of this as she got from my face, or, or whatever it was that amused her. This had a powerful effect on upon her. Gradually, she pirouetted and danced, and dancing subsided 
and the nearly hurried back and forth, and at length she was making her way stealthily. She was embarrassed, and once I saw her glance down quickly and examine her feet, so that in a few minutes she no longer laughed. Instead, there was a grimness in her face, and finally she was glancing at me with bitter hatred. Okay, go ahead. How do you guys feel about that being at this point? This is one of the points in the novel where, you know, he's going on, crazy guy, prostitute, you know, can't have sex, doesn't know where he is, kind of claiming I'm an atheist. But what about this point? This is a particular point in the novel. What is he doing, Tiffany? What is he doing? Embarrassing. Yeah, right? And almost to the point where he's making a point of it. And why is it? Because she she embarrassed him. Yeah, because he's taken some offense that she laughed at him, right? And so he becomes brutal. And this is a pattern he comes back to again and again, right? He turns on her. So here's the first stop. And now he uses the shoes. That's the one. And then... He says, beneath that, where Maureen, go about three paragraphs <coughs> down, suddenly she laughed again, it was a shriek, a mad laugh like the clatter of dishes, and it was all over as quickly as it began, kind of the foreshadowing of her madness going into the desert. I looked at her feet again. I could feel something <coughs> inside her retreating. I wanted to hurt her, right? Kind of like who? Continental, huh? Tommy, right? There's this kind of psychological violence going on here between Camila and and it goes on throughout most of the novel. Okay, let's go on to the next page. Quick thing before we go and we look at some of the more violence between them, and then his kind of discussion of why. But anyone know on page 37 at the bottom? Um, he had a, talked about this guy, Benny Cohen. It's the last paragraph. <coughs> he had a wooden leg with a little door in it. Inside the door was marijuana cigarettes. Isn't that really cool? Like, if you had a wooden leg, wouldn't you want to have a door with marijuana cigarettes somewhere in? Like, that's a trippy thing. Think about marijuana, too, that I'm fascinated by, because later on, we know that Camila starts smoking marijuana, right? She goes and, you know, Bandini, I keep on using the two interchangeably, Bandini's like, how can you do this? This is terrible. But it was only about 20 or 30 years before this novel was written that marijuana was really even kind of considered illegal. It was even considered a problem, right? And not until the film in the mid-30s, Reefer Madness. Has anyone ever seen that? If you haven't seen Reefer Madness, take some time and talk about the transvaluation of values. I read about the book. I mean about the book. You can watch it free online. And it's just basically a complete propaganda film to make you completely freak out that once you start doing marijuana, you're going to lose your mind. And you're going to go crazy. And so it's really interesting that he takes on the kind of propagandist piece here. And he's like freaked out. Well, just a couple, like a decade or two before, you know, smoking marijuana was basically like not even considered an issue. And it's kind of interesting when you talk about the transvaluation of values. How something that we all now, if someone to say marijuana, you'd all be like, ooh, is there someone you're going to kick out? Oh, you just smoke marijuana. A hundred years ago, they'd be like, what? I don't what are you talking about? It's a plant. You roll it up, you smoke it, like tobacco. It makes you feel a little weird, but no one ever killed anyone on marijuana. Or maybe they did. I don't know. I'm not saying that. But <laughs> the vision is that we kind of built a whole narrative around marijuana over the last hundred years, right? And that's that notion, that Nietzschean notion of transvaluing an idea. And whether or not this isn't about marijuana, but it's the way in which at a particular moment, in a particular culture, something has a particular balance. 
Something has a particular way we look at it and come together. And I think in 100 years, you look back on it, and we might be like, why didn't we think sending kids to college would be useful? All they did is get drunk, right? Like, we had no control over them. What was the good idea about putting men and women in co-op, you know, you know, what do you call it? Not co-op. Co-ed dorms, right? That was all found. They're 18, 19 year old. They're bound to go crazy, right? We didn't think about that. Like, they could come and look back at this whole experiment we're doing and say, that was insane. How did they ever think anything good would come out of that? And we assume it's obviously right, because we're in it. And I love, at its heart, Nietzsche, and at its heart, the transvaluation of values would have you challenge those basic assumptions, which I think is a powerful element of anything. All right. But the point I wanted to get to, I wasn't really wanting to talk about marijuana, cigarettes, and a guy's little leg, although I find it intriguing. He sold them for 15 cents apiece. He also sold newspapers, The Examiner and The Times. He had a room piled high with copies of the new masses. What's the new masses? Anyone look at it? Sounds religious, but it's not. I like, could be. What is it? A new masses. When I was a kid in school, <laughs> the new masses is kind of a, it's a right wing, no, it's a left wing communist kind of magazine that was published in the 20th, 30s. You gotta remember, this is the depression. This is a moment where people are pissed off, where they don't have jobs, where 20% of the population is not employed gainfully. You would imagine that something like communism or something like socialism would start to bubble to the fore. And people would start to take it seriously. In fact, the Red Scare that happens in America in the 50s, in many ways, comes back to this moment in the 20s and 30s when people didn't have jobs or didn't have food. And they joined in the vision of what communism or socialism would be. And the New Masses was one of those publications. Everything you read is another point to another part of the narrative. You must take the time. All right. Anyway, go on. To, I want to look at chapter six. I want to spend some time on chapter six. And actually, before we do, let's spend a moment on chapter, <coughs> the end of chapter five and into chapter six. And this is probably, I don't know if we'll get out of chapter six by the end of class. Maybe we will, but I don't think we will. I want to talk a bit about page 44. And I want to read this. So, who wants to start reading? This is, she kept glancing toward the saloon. Does anyone want to read that? She kept glancing toward the saloon. Yes, Sarah, excellent. She kept glancing towards the saloon. Okay, slow and loud. She kept glancing towards the saloon. I have to get back, she said. They'll miss me. Come back tomorrow night, will you? Please, I can be nice. I'm awfully sorry about tonight. Please come, please. She squeezed my arm. Will you come? Maybe. She smiled. Forgive me? Sure. I stood in the middle of the sidewalk and watched her hurry back. After a few steps, she turned, blew a kiss, and called, Tomorrow night, don't forget. Camila, I said, wait, just a minute. We ran towards each other, meeting halfway. Hurry, she said, they'll fire me. I glanced at her feet. She sensed it coming, and I felt her recoiling from me. Now a good feeling rushed through me, a coolness, a newness like new skin. I spoke slowly. Those were 
Do you have to wear them to be that? Do you have to emphasize the fact that you always were and always will be a filthy little research? Oh. Oh. This is one of those points when I first read this novel, I was like, what the hell? This, he's out of his mind. He's a maniac. This is like so abusive. And at the same point, he's got this kind of joy, joyful feeling coming up that he's abusing her and taking her down. Right? And he talks about this emotion in chapter 6. But who wants to keep reading on from there? You want to keep on reading, Sarah? That was excellent. Sure. Keep on reading down to the bottom. She looked at me in horror, her lips open. Clasping both hands against her mouth, she rushed inside the saloon. I heard her moaning, oh, oh, oh. I tossed my shoulders and swaggered away, whistling with pleasure. In the gutter, I saw a long cigarette butt. I picked it up without shame, lit it as I stood with one foot in the gutter, puffed it, and ex exhaled towards the stars. I was an American, and goddamn proud of it. This great city, these mighty pavements and proud buildings, they were the voice of my America. From sand and cactus, we Americans had carved an empire. Camila's people had had their chance. They had failed. We Americans had turned the trick. Thank God for my country. Thank God I had been born an American. What do you make of that? What do you make of that passage? It's confusing. Why? Confusion is good. <coughs> he's just very flip-floppy on how he handles Camila. And also, he says he's born an American. But then he admires Joe DiMaggio so much because he's an Italian. Yeah, right? I mean, in a parent or immigrants, right? So, yeah, I love the confusion, the flip-flop. What else? What do you see in this? What about this whole diatribe about being an American? He's proud. He's proud. Are you <coughs> proud to call yourself an American alongside him in this frame? You are? Were you proud to be an American? But in this frame, in this context of this book, how he's saying it. Yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I mean, so yes, let's, let's, let's frame him for a second then. You said this came out of 39? 39. Uh, I mean, yeah, everyone, America was like, what everyone, everyone thought it was like golden roads, like this huge, because there wasn't, like no one knew what America was like, because everyone over there thought it was so amazing. <coughs> We were, we were the best out of everyone. Well, that was well, there's that a, period of time. Well, there's a crazy story. I mean, in Russia during the 30s, right, Grapes of Wrath came out. And Leo, correct me if I'm wrong with this. And basically, John Ford's classic film, Grapes of Wrath, which was a film about the Depression, came out in Russia. And they were basically showing it to say, hey, look, the Americans, this is not a land of honey and butter. This is a place that's struggling just as much. And according to apocryphal story, the Russians said, wait, every family has a car. They're doing much better than we are, right? So it kind of worked against the whole propaganda piece, saying America isn't, in some ways, the land of honey and butter. But for me, and I don't know <coughs> where we're disconnecting, Benini is saying, you're a filthy little greaser, not necessarily my vision, right? That's the bigoted American, right? You're, I tossed my shoulders and swaggered away, whistling with pleasure. In the gutter, I saw a long Right before he's saying how great it is to America, what is he doing? Taking a freaking cigarette butt out of the gutter and smoking it. He's got one foot in the gutter. I mean, this guy is in the gutter. He's a piece of crap. <laughs> I was an American. He was a piece of crap. <coughs> I'm goddamn proud of it. The great city, these paved, mighty pavements, the proud buildings, they were the voice of my America. 
And when you think about that confusing voice of Bandini that you pointed at, man, uh, Michael, this is a, is this the voice of America? Maybe. But I don't think it's a voice of greatness. I think it's a voice of confusion. Particularly when you're thinking about Bandini and his particular background. Oh, it's a voice of hope. I do think he does have a voice of hope, but I think at this point, right, when he's saying Camila's people had their chance, they had failed. Who are Camila's people? Mexicans. Mexicans, but is that true? No. No. Where's Camila? She's like, you Dago, you heard? She's you Dago bastard. I'm an American. Like, where, what is your vision of America? This is this singular vision of a white male America. And what's crazy about it is Bandini isn't even a part of it. It's a crazy vision. And I love this moment because kind of, you know, we've been through a lot of American jingoism over the last 10 or 15 years, right? After 9-11, it was hard to escape it. And I have to say that there are amazing things about this country, but you can't understand a country outside of its context, outside of its many different contexts. There's no one vision of America. I think that's what's great about it. So it's interesting here that he's kind of setting that up only in the next chapter to bring it down. So let's take a look. We go, 45, chapter 6. For me, like the, the passages we, talk, we touched on on Tuesday, these are some of the more powerful passages of the book, particularly because he starts to unravel his relationship to who he is, to his identity in relationship to Camila. So <clears throat> he starts the chapter <clears throat> talking about all the different people from all the different places that came to LA. And he talks about LA in the paradisical sense in a couple of times, right? He says, and this is on 45, around the middle of that first paragraph, um, Kansas City and Chicago and Peoria to find a place in the sun. And when they got here, they found that other and greater thieves had already taken possession, that even the sun belonged to the others. Smith and Jones and Parker, druggist, banker, baker, dust of Chicago and Cincinnati and Cleveland on their shoes, doomed to die in the sun. A few dollars in the bank, enough to subscribe to the Los Angeles Times, enough to keep alive the illusion that this was paradise. That their little paper mache homes were castles. The uprooted one, the empty sad folks, the old and the young folks, the folks from back home, these were my countrymen. These were the new Californians with their bright polo shirts and sunglasses. They were in paradise. They belonged. Right? And there's this immediate vision of a paradise. It's now. Right? It's empty now. And I love the way he talks about all these people. Let's take it back to 46. The bottom of 46. Lying in my bed. That paragraph. Let's go down to Ah Camila. Right? Who wants to read that? Shalene, did you read yet? No. Good. Okay, go. Okay. Ah Camila. When I was a kid back home in Colorado, it was Smith and Parker and Jones who hurt me with their hideous names, called me Wop and Doggo and Greaser, and their children hurt me just as I hurt you tonight. They hurt me so much I could never become one of them, drove me to books, drove me within myself, drove me to run away from that Colorado town, and sometimes, Camila, when I see their faces, I feel the hurt all over again, the old ache there, and sometimes I'm glad they're here, dying in the sun, uprooted, tricked by their heartlessness, the same faces, the same set, hard mouths, Faces from my hometown, fulfilling the emptiness of their lives under a blazing sun. I, I see them in the lobbies of hotels. I see them sunning in the parks and limping out of ugly little churches. 
their faces bleak from proximity with their strange gods, out of Amy's temple, out of the church of the great I am. I've seen them stagger out of their movie palaces and blink their empty eyes into the face of reality once more, and stagger home to read the times to find out what's going on in the world. I have vomited at their newspapers, read their literature, observed their customs, eaten their food, desired their women, gaped at their art. But I am poor, and my name ends with a soft vowel, and they hate me and my father, and my father's father, and they would have my blood and put me down, but they are old now, dying in the sun and in the hot dust of the road, and I am young and full of hope and love for my country and my times. And when I say grace or you, it is not my heart that speaks, but the quivering of an old wound, and I am ashamed of the terrible thing I have done. What do you make of this? Make of these passages. What do we learn about Bandini? He's made fun. Yeah, I mean, he very much same thing that he's doing to Camilla. Who did to him? Right, the Parkers, the Smiths, right, the Joneses. Remember that moment where Camilla? You know, she has another identity. What's her other identity? It's not Camilla Lopez. It's Camilla. Remember it? Lombard, right? This anglicized name, right? There's a sense that what we're seeing with both Camilla and with Bandini is that kind of struggle with this notion of their identity, not only as an American but as something else. And that moment of hope that you talk about, Leo, I think it's here too. And one of the points I see it is, but I am poor and my name ends with a soft vowel, Eni. I'm a bandini. You can always tell in Italian. He's always got an eeny, right? There's always a little eeny, right? That's what he's talking about. Desire their women, gasp that there are, but I am poor. My name ends with a soft vowel, and they hate me and my father and my father's father, and they would have my blood and put me down. But they are old, dying in the sun in the hot dust of the road, and I am young, full of hope and love for my country and my times. I love that. To me, that's a vision of America I can get behind, right? A vision of kind of a new era, a new order, a transvaluation of what it means to be one thing. A rethinking about questions of ethnicity and race, things that will define the 20th century. For me, that's kind of a point where you've got to problematize this thing. Bandini turning on Camilla is obviously a direct reflection of his own pain. People are turning on him. Right? Framing him for being different, for being other. And he doesn't even give her, almost throughout the entire book, that space as American. He himself is blinded by the same thing that he hates these others for. This is kind of very confusing. Right? And it's part of the genius of Bandini as a character. He's no one thing. Right? His essence is anything if not chaotic and unpredictable. Now, one last question. What is Amy's temple? Anyone look this up? This is cool. So, this is what you're missing. Okay. This, when you read your book, and this is what you do, right? You, you pick up your book and you're like this. This is what you miss. You miss some amazing elements that are just kind of offhanded talked to, I mean pointed to, I'm using the wrong mouse, but are really kind of amazing. Let me talk to you about this. No, it's not com, it's org. 
There we go. Um, Amy McPherson was actually a Canadian-American, um, and she actually started one of the most popular churches of the 20th century. And let me just get her here. Yeah. And she's a fascinating, she's a flapper era. She's a fascinating woman. In the teens and 20s, she started a church. And the church was based in Los Angeles, and it was called the Four Square Church, which is interesting. How many of you use Four Square as a place to check in and say, hey, I'm here? No one good, so that means you're not annoying. So <laughs> Four Square is actually a social service where you check in and you're like, hey, I'm here. But she started this church, which was called the Four Square Church. And what was interesting, she was the second woman in the US to get a radio broadcast license. And what she did, kind of like we're doing, she broadcasted out her sermons. And what was crazy about her sermons is they were actually inflected by popular media, by film, by literature. They weren't traditional ideas of religion. She was kind of melding in a whole new, very West Coast hippie aesthetic for the idea of a sermon. She was a radical. You know, and she was obviously highly religious, but also a very radical woman. And she created this huge kind of following, almost the megachurch before the megachurch arose. You could put Amy Semple McPherson on. And she's very much a kind of element of the moment Bandini is talking and Fante is writing. And Fante, you'll see in this passage, he has a real deep disdain for films. He has this idea that you go to a film, and when you go to a film, you check out from reality. Even in that passage, he points to that. Now, for him, the great writers, the Faulkners, the Mencken's, they were the ones who were determining the future of culture. But it's interesting how Amy Semple McPherson was one of those. She's this fascinating figure that you would never know anything about if you just went by and said, Amy's church, I mean, this is a whole part of LA culture in the 30s that I find just truly fascinating. You know, you had these crazy, radical people, whether it be people who are writing for the new masses and these kind of radical communist movements in the 30s during the Depression, or these people who, according to Lenin, were playing on the opium of the people to get other people involved and part of their churches and part of what they did, right? But she was doing it in a radically new way. She was bringing popular culture to the sermon. Kind of a fascinating thing. So let this be my last point. There's a lot to say about Ask the Dust. And think about this question of ethnicity and this Americanness that comes up here. For me, it's a very deep and problematic part of Fonte's novels, and it comes up again and again in all his novels. It's crucial, much like his Catholicism. But the other thing is, ask yourself when you're reading, do I really know what I just read? Do I really know what these things just mean? And would that magic box, known as a computer, help me? It can. We're not that far away from What's her name? Princess Leia coming on your desktop and saying, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi. You saw Tupac at Coachella. The future is now. The hologram reading assistant is coming. But you know, think about it. How easy it is for you all to just go to the web and start augmenting your reading with it. But it's amazing to me how few of you do. What are you here for? To just look at my beautiful face? There's got to be more to life than this. You need to take control of it. All right, you're free. Happy Thank birthday, you guys. Google. What's that? Happy birthday, Google. Happy birthday, Google. Now use it. <laughs> <laughs>
All right.